Welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Mickey Badlamenti, discipleship pastor here at Rock Point Community Church. Our goal in the messages we share is to consistently present God's truth in ways that will challenge you, bring you new perspective, and ultimately lead you into closer relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Wherever you're listening from, we hope this message encourages you in your faith. We also welcome you to visit us anytime you're in the Detroit area. Our Sunday services are at 9 and 11 a.m. and include a full range of children's programs, as well as a ministry specifically for children with special needs. Find us on Facebook or visit our website at rockpoint.org for more information. All right, good morning again. Just a couple of quick announcements before we get going I wanted to remind you of. Uh, right now we are in about the final week or so of registration for Detroit Bible Institute classes. So three great classes being offered. You can check those out online. You can check them out in the atrium. Sign up for one of those. Ask some questions. We encourage you to do that. There's a lot more that's going to be kicking off in the next few weeks. You're going to be seeing, of course, Axiom Youth uh, going on. You're going to see Light Company for young adults. You're going to see Bible studies happening, discussion groups, a lot of ways to plug in there. And also wanted to mention to you as well in this reignite season that we've been talking about for the summer. You probably saw this. Uh, homecoming weekend is coming up in just, I believe it's two weeks out. And so that is going to be a whole weekend. Check that out in here online. There's going to be a worship night Friday night. There's going to be a family movie night that uh, kids can come to Saturday night with the, with the parents. And then also uh, homecoming on Sunday. It's going to be a single service at 11 a.m. You know, the 9 a.m. people were so excited they could sleep in. All right. So they're going to join you there. And then afterwards, of course, there's going to be food and family and fun. So we invite you out to that. Bring a friend. We'd, we'd love to see you out there. We have been uh, walking through a summer series we've called Reignite, as some things are really reigniting here and reigniting in the church, uh, really across the culture, across the world. I had a conversation just yesterday with a few pastors of the area, and it seems that everyone's kind of on the same page as far as what's, what's happening right now. We, in the last few weeks, have had some, some great perspective. If you've seen some of what has been shared that began with Bishop Harris and was also shared from Alicia Wood, we had Abdu Murray here, we had Stuart uh, McAllister, all sharing along uh, similar lines here, and it's my pleasure today to join my voice into that, and I wanted to share with you a perspective on something today that begins with the words of Jesus And we're going to look at Matthew chapter 7, so if you would with me, look at these words and let these words just drink into your soul. Jesus says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Father, I pray that you speak from your word today regarding what you would say to your church. In Jesus' name, amen. There is a great crash happening today. We have seen this. You may have been aware of it. You may have been sensitive to it. Sometimes we're even confused as to what exactly is causing it. But I think many of us are aware that something seems to be crashing down in society. I believe we no longer know what to build on. We are walking a path out in which, contrary to Jesus' warning, 
we are deciding to replace foundations with sand and thinking that is not going to have an impact. Jesus' words are so carefully chosen, I feel like it just makes the point so well to see a visual of what he said about this house built on sand because it doesn't fully grab you until you can visualize it, right? So, so I brought that for you. This is not my house, by the way, just letting you know. But this is somebody's. And what you see here is a situation in which a house built on two houses built on sand. And you can see how the sand was eroded away by the water. And you can even see some of the structure right where the cracks are, some of the pillars, if you were, the things supporting the house that were supposed to be rock solid, but these things were eroded away. And of course, eventually, might not have happened for a long time. There might have been nothing that seemed to be going wrong. And then all of a sudden, a crack, a splinter, a sound, and the house falls with a great crash. That's what Jesus was warning us all about. This is a subject that's particular. I'm passionate about. In fact, if I might back up for a moment, over 20 years ago, I was a person who was born into a religious home. It was a home of respect. It was a home that um, considered those things, practiced it as best it could, but for whatever reason, it, it just didn't take that well in my life. I, I held some doubts. I, I became, in my teenage years, a little bit more skeptical. I also had a friend of mine who challenged those perspectives. He, he was a, from a different faith, a different religion. Of course, later on in life, he did come to faith and put his faith in Jesus Christ. He's somebody I could probably, quite honestly, say I look up to. <laughs> Most of you already know. You know the history, and for those of you who don't, if you catch up two weeks ago and you watch Abdu Murray speak, you might be able to catch on video that he's six foot eight. So frankly, we all look up to him. Okay. And it challenged my perspective, and it was things that, that I was walking through. So I wasn't always a Christian, right? I, I, I was curious about these things. At one point, we were rooming together in college, and there were two gentlemen that would come by every few weeks, and they were very faithful in this. They would come by, and they would share about their faith. It was just something they did. And they, they shared perspective. They shared scripture. Their character was great. It was kind. It was patient. I never forgot that. And they also brought answers where they could, to the best that they could. And it wasn't until eight years, though, after I no longer saw them again, that here I was in life, I was building a career, I had some financial success that was gaining, and, and yet I was feeling empty in some way inside. Things weren't connecting. It felt like a little bit like life was built on shifting sand. And then I finally, it clicked in one day. All of this came to a head, and I realized in my own search, in my own spiritual journey, that Jesus was different, that, that he was more than just another teacher, that the Bible was more than just another set of guidelines. It snapped into view, and I bowed my knee one day, and I received him for the first time as Lord of my life. And the ground beneath me changed in that moment from shifting sand to a rock. It changed my life. It changed my entire way of viewing life. Now, every of us, all of us have different paths that some of us I've talked to had faith from the moment they could remember it as, as a young kid. Others of us just picked it up last week. Welcome. Some of us picked it up along the way. They're all valid paths, and God has different ways of working on this. But it, I, it gave me a particular passion for this because I realized how many questions there were out there, how many opportunities to be skeptical of these things exist out there, and that's only increased a friend, a friend of mine and me, Abdu and me, years later, formed a ministry where we began to share the faith and talk about the reasons for the faith and, and 
and there's a key scripture in which God calls the church to us all in this, and this is something near and dear to my heart. First Peter chapter 3 that says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Remember that, lordship. We'll get back to that. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, just like those gentlemen. Do this with kindness. But most importantly, he says, be prepared to give a reason. There are questions out there. There are challenges out there. And this is God's call to the church, to the followers of Jesus, to say that this issue, it's more than simply sharing where we personally place our faith. There's more going on underneath the surface. And today, that's what I want to present to you. It's this question to the whole world and to us of what will you build on? What will you build on? And yet, while the church has been sort of in the last generation showing the different house, the rooms of the house of what you might call the faith, I believe that there are foundations under that that have been slowly and subtly eroded. And this is the piece we need to get. And so today I'm not offering so much of a solution. I don't have all the answers. I'm walking this journey too. But I'm hoping that it might be an eye-opener to us as to identifying the issues, identifying the challenges, the reason why we just don't seem that the voice connects anymore to the culture. That the, the idea of Jesus Christ, the truth of the gospel, just seems to fall on deaf ears. And we may wonder why. And that's what I want to address. And so when we think of Jesus being this rock upon which things are built, upon which life is built, I believe that, that consistent to who he is in his very nature, that rock is like four pillars all formed together. And so if you can imagine with me these pillars, what are they that have been eroded and replaced by sand? The first pillar that I would point to is the pillar that we'd call truth. Truth. Now let's start this with a scripture that goes back to ancient times because believe it or not, this is not a new problem. It is a prevalent problem today. It's a prevalent issue and challenge today, but it's always been there from the very beginning. And we see this in Genesis chapter 3 where we're told that as Satan approached Adam and Eve, ones who were in relationship with God, who were walking that out, who really didn't have any of the challenges we might face in this way today, Satan comes along and he says this statement. After God had told them, don't eat of this one particular tree because if you do, it's, gonna, it's going to result in spiritual death for you. It's going to result in death for you. He told them that. Satan comes along and says, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Now, what I find interesting in that is that's not what God said. He said there's only one tree you can't eat from, not just any tree. But already we start to see a twisting of the truth. The pillar is being eroded. And the way it's being eroded, notice, is that in essence what he was saying to them is don't think about the facts. Just forget about the facts. How do you feel about the matter? The facts aren't important. I can change those. How do you really feel about this matter? Truth, in the biblical understanding of it, in the classic understanding of it, would be defined as this. We would say truth is, is that which conforms to fact and reality. That which conforms to fact or reality. Now notice the nature of that is that it's external to people. It's not internal. It's not something defined in here. It's something that's also defined by what's around us. It's objective. It's not just based on feelings. It's based on facts and evidence and things that we can observe, things of reality. And it's binding, therefore, on everyone. So 
you walk over to the, the corner of a street and the light turns green, you may feel perfectly fine about walking across that street in the moment, but you're going to quickly find your feelings have little to do with the matter, right? Because as the car is coming, it doesn't care about that. It only knows what the reality is. And the fact is you're going to get potentially injured by that car. There are truths, in other words, that are external to us. They're objective, not based on how we feel in the moment, and they're binding. But that's not truth the way it's understood anymore. This is why we get a blank stare. Because truth, according to postmodernism, which is something that's been growing for decades now in the culture, is been redefined as my lived experience, independent of everything else. So think about the difference there. It's not that you're simply talking to somebody saying this is true about the world or this is true about God and they're saying I believe that's false. That's not it anymore. It's that you're saying this is true about the world or this is true about God and they're saying that's irrelevant because all that matters is my lived experience. How do you have a conversation how do you talk about what really matters? How do you talk about if God exists? How do you talk about who Jesus is if that's the starting point? Postmodernism, one source says, um, has caused thinkers who, people who frequently describe any kind of knowledge claim or even any kind of values as socially conditioned. They're not external. They're not binding on all. They're socially conditioned by the moment, by the people. They reject the universal validity of binary um, oppositions. In other words, if something is true, the opposite of it is false. That's rejected. It just matters what you feel. Postmodernism is skeptical of explanations that claim to be valid for all people, all groups, all cultures. It's a, it reacts even by saying that reality is a mental construct. It's not there, what's real out there doesn't matter. It's, all that matters is what your mind perceives. And that can be up to you. Are you seeing the issue? Are you seeing the erosion? that begins to happen here? 17 years ago, there were voices out there that were warning this was coming, and now it's home to roost. And this is why the disconnect is happening. There was an individual recently who was, um, she was a particular uh, uh, celebrity hired on for a show. Uh, she, at one point, posted out there that there was an issue going on. She was noticing that uh, people were getting increasingly angry, increasingly devaluing one another, not having a valid conversation, a civil conversation, but just seeking to hate and demean one another. And pointed out, this person pointed out, that if, if based on what we know of history, if this continues, we're going to have people getting injured. We're going to have people being uh, destroyed. That's the risk that's going to happen here. We need to, we need to stem this. They got in trouble for posting this basic idea. And so somebody came in to correct them from their organization. And in the, now this is the key point. Regardless of what they were discussing, this to me is what really spoke. While they were having the discussion, this person made their case about what they were saying and the history that backs it and all the reasons and experience that says this is probably where we're going to go if this continues. This is what's going to happen among neighbors if this continues and this anger keeps going. And the person's response to them was, that's the problem. You're talking about facts when what matters is feelings. Do you see the shift? And so we no longer, and, and I find this interesting, I, I, I'm glad I probably wasn't there because I probably wouldn't have been able to avoid this and it frankly would have come across snarky, but I wouldn't have meant it that way. I don't think I would have been able to help looking at that person and saying, with all due respect, is what you're saying right now a fact? Is it binding on me regardless of how I feel about it? You see what I mean? You think about that? 
it's, they, they, they don't see that the emperor has no clothes, okay, in what's being said. The very statement itself is still assuming things are external and objective and binding. You can't kill truth with truth. And yet, that is the deception that's going on. And so, we see this playing out. In fact, there was a popular treatment of this in a recent movie. Some people liked the movie, some people didn't like the movie, whatever. But we're going to let Wonder Woman speak on the issue. Okay? So, if you saw Wonder Woman 1984, what I found compelling about the movie is the theme. And the theme was that this individual finds this uh, ancient, ancient device that, uh, that allows them to get anything they wish for, regardless of what the world needs, regardless of what's going to happen to the world. They get what they want. They get their lived experience. People begin to utilize this thing, and it begins to spread. And you see through the course of the movie that as this happens, things turn into utter chaos. There is mayhem in the streets people begin to lose the understanding of the value of other people or other circumstances outside of them, binding upon them that they're accountable to. They lose all of that because all that matters is they get their lived experience. And this is the danger of of what we're seeing now. When we rip down truth and we recreate it only in our image with no care to the rest, what happens? G.K. Chesterton once said it this way. He said, if you come across a fence and you want to rip it down, you need to first ask why it was put there in the first place. We've ripped down the fence. We've ripped down the pillar of truth. And the house is crashing. What else would we expect? Isaiah 59 says, like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. We're people without eyes today. So justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets. Honesty cannot enter. Truth is nowhere to be found. And whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Is this sounding familiar? And if the church, if Christians do not restore and find a way to restore the pillar that the nature of truth is external, it's exclusive, it makes claims of true or false, it has to, it always does, it's binding. If we don't make, if we don't stand for this and find a way to bring that forward in our message, everything comes crashing down. It's on sand. So the issue has begun there, but the pillars have eroded further than that. Because you've got the issue with truth, but then the second pillar is the pillar of God. Specifically, that God is the creator. He's the eternal creator of everything and everyone. And he's the moral authority over everyone. So those two ideas, God is creator and God is the moral authority of all. That is the classic understanding of who God is. That is what the Bible tells us God is. That is what's revealed for us to grasp, for us to receive. But that has been changed. Modernism brought in the idea that God is simply a mental construct of humans. He's been disproved by modern evidence, and he is not a morally binding authority. If you question that, if you think I'm incorrect in that, just spend a few days. Go find articles anywhere near this subject or even not near this subject and begin to read the comments of people below as they discuss what's being said. To make it fun, pick up a few spicy articles where people are disagreeing over something, some hot-button topic, and of course, you'll see the conversation kind of devolve from there. But what you will find, inevitably, is you will see a filter coming through increasingly with, with greater frequency that people believe the second definition, that there's no real good reason anymore to believe that God is there. 
This is widespread. In fact, it has been so, it's, it's pervaded the culture so much. Let me give you an example of this. Because we're already using terminology that came from this idea of rejection of God, whether you know it or not. And don't feel bad because we use it in a different way. But here, just follow me on this. How many people in here, show of hands, how many people in here know the term meme, M-E-M-E, when you see a meme? A lot of hands, a lot of hands. We all know this term, a meme. In fact, if, for those of you who don't know it and for those of you who enjoy them anyway, this is a common meme as we mean it today. So let me give you a picture. This is an example of a meme. That adorable kid fist pumping there. And the idea that they're coming across is when somebody says, I don't know a question on a test, but the answer is in another question. Yes. Okay, it's been a long time since I've experienced that. It's been a few years since college. But, you know, the idea that it's conveying is that's what you feel when you find that answer in another question. Okay? It's a cute, pithy way to, to, uh, to relay an idea. Is, is, is what a meme is. If that doesn't convince you, there's a, a host of memes out there uh, about Chuck Norris. Apparently, Chuck Norris is the toughest man that has ever lived. Okay, Chuck Norris was a, he, he was a tournament karate champion, so he was pretty tough, but apparently he's the toughest that has ever lived. Because when Chuck Norris has sliced onions, when he slices onions, onions cry. Or here's another one. <laughs> Chuck Norris can cut through a hot knife with butter. <laughs> Think about it. Now, the thing about memes, typically, stuff like this, is it's, it's, it's like a virus in the mind. That's the idea. It plants in there and it spreads. But it's not necessarily real or it's not relevant. It's just something that implants in there and grows. Did you know, though, that the word meme, even though we use it in kind of a funny and silly way, like, do you know the origin of it and where it spread so quickly into the culture? The term itself, meme, was coined by a man named Richard Dawkins. He is a evolutionary biologist and scientist who has written multiple books. One of those was The God Delusion. And in a book called The Selfish Gene, he coined the term meme. He said a meme is a virus of the mind. It's an idea that implants itself and spreads like wildfire even though it has no reality or validity or anything worthwhile in it. And do you know what he said the greatest meme was? God. So from that starting point, the culture picked up on this popular phrase, knowing who coined it and knowing why. And that has become so pervasive that we all use it now. Now, I'm not saying if you use that, you reject God. But what I'm saying is, can you see where it began and how pervasive? Because the understanding of the viewpoint that God is a virus of the mind is out there. And it's strong. Or how about the universe itself, God, what God created? There's strong, strong reasons to believe that this, this whole world, this whole creation was so finely tuned like a perfect machine so that we could be here. It's, it's, it's compelling evidence for a creator. And yet, we have this idea, and again, anybody in here watch any Marvel movies? If so, you've already kind of been experienced to this. Again, used in a little different way now, but it's the idea of the multiverse. Who's ever heard of the multiverse idea? I'm just curious. That's a little less than meme, but it's getting there. There's a lot of hands still. You would have not known that term 10 years ago. Where did it come from and why? Well, in, when you watch you know, Marvel movies today, the multiverse is an idea that you have all these different universes, and in each one, there's different versions of people living in it. And that's why there's going to be a huge debate soon over whether the best Spider-Man is Tobey Maguire or Tom Holland. I'm sure it's coming, okay? If, you're, if you follow these movies, you know what I'm talking about. Those are two Spider-Mans, all right? So that's kind of where the, where the debate ends for, for common culture. But where, where did it start? 
The idea of the multiverse started like this. It started from, among other people, a man named, anybody know this name, Stephen Hawking? Brilliant man. Brilliant man in his own right on physics and, and quantum gravity and other things, okay? But what he said is he said, perhaps, no evidence for this. This is not a scientific claim. This is just a conjecture. Perhaps there is a multiverse out there, a bunch of universes like soap bubbles on the top of water. Each pop, every time a soap bubble pops up, it's another soap bubble universe. And perhaps they're just popping up like that all the time. And if that's the case, then eventually one of those would have life in it like us. And then he brings in the point. So what need then for a creator? Do you see the origin of the idea? The meme that was planted, that has grown in culture, the roots of this? Again, if you watch movies with multiverses, don't feel bad. It's not capturing really the same idea. But the reason you're hearing it is because it has pervaded culture, and that's where it started. And that is what has increasingly also continued out there. And so we've whisked away God. We've whisked away his creation. We're replacing God. What about his chief creation that the Bible tells us about? What about you and I? Well, you only have to pull up Google like I did a couple of weeks ago to search something. And on that particular day, Google usually changes what they're talking about. You know, different things going out there and that'll be kind of their, their main graphic on their page, on their search engine page. And I pull it up and they were celebrating that day something called Turkana Boy. Turkana Boy is a name for a hominid skeleton, an ape-like skeleton, hominid-type creature that has been found that is considered one of the ancient ancestors of us. Now you know what I'm talking about here. The idea that we came from the apes and, and were not, in any sense of the word, uh, a special creation by God. If you don't think that's pervasive, you're not really reading. You're not looking around. We need to open our eyes and our ears more. And so what's interesting about that is that has become so embedded that even when you have people like this, David Swift, excellent book, Man did his research. He's an expert in genetics. He's an expert in, in, bio, in biology. He's an expert in evolution biology. He's an expert in fossil record. And he, over, over the course of 20 years, looked at genetic variabilities, looked at everything, species, all of that. And he comes to a conclusion, though not a Christian per se, just comes to a conclusion that there are serious problems with the idea that everything came from nothing, came from the soup, in an undirected way. He even makes statements like this. He says, it seems to me that the evidence points to the creation of adaptable but different primordial organisms. Let me interpret that. He's saying, it seems to me like there are these different things that were originally created and they're within their own boundaries. Yes, they adapt. Yes, they change. But that's what it looks like when we look at all the evidence. That sounds a heck of a lot like Genesis and what God said he did. Contrast to the idea that everything kind of sprang from the first life form and just undirected produced us eventually. But you see the difference in the ideas here because one is a pillar of stone and one is a pillar of sand because it begins to change how we view everything. If we replace God, if we replace him as creator, if we replace him as, as the one who created us and gave us value, we get totally twisted on everything. Genesis 3, verse 5, is interesting that this is what Satan told and promised Adam and Eve. He said, for God knows when you eat from this fruit, 
and you disobey him basically and you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Think about what he's saying. You're not going to need God anymore to determine what's right or wrong, what's good or evil. In other words, he's not going to be your morally binding authority anymore. You will be. It will be your lived experience. Now, I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound safe to me to live in a house. Would you do this? Would you live in a house if it had no designer, no design, and it was built on no foundation? Would you live there? Nowadays, it seems people are paying anything for a house, but I don't know if that's worth paying for because I think you're going to end up like we saw in that picture if you live there. I wouldn't live there, but that's exactly where we're living. We're living life saying there is no designer, there is no design, and it has no foundation, but it's all going to be okay. Stuart McAllister said last week, when you realize there's a God, everything recalibrates. That was my experience. Things recalibrated in terms of how you understood the world around you and the people in it. Alicia said that the painting's worth is defined by the painter. Our worth is defined by whether or not there is a painter who painted us. If that is not, you remove that, don't expect the painting to have value in each other's eyes much longer. It was, it was years ago that after I answered this question, what will I build on, that my wife and I held up our firstborn child to God saying, in this fallen world, we don't know what is going to come about for him. And whether he'll have a great time or whether there will be challenges, but what we do know is we offer him to you to shape as you see fit. And, it, and when we prayed that prayer, we did not know that sometime later we would hear the diagnosis of autism. But when we heard that diagnosis and we knew that he would be challenged in ways that we never would, some of us, and he could not excel in ways that some of us can, that's where everything shifts and recalibrates. Because do I now look at that child and I say, well, you know, this is my felt experience on the matter, that he's just another undirected bag of chemicals, right? He wasn't put here for any purpose. It's meaningless, so oh well. Or do I, I look in that face and say, that this one who's challenged in this way nevertheless bears the image of God like a painter makes a painting, that he has a future, and that most importantly that we are to care for all, especially, as Jesus says, those who need it the most. Do you see how everything shifts? Look in your kid's eyes and ask yourself, are you looking into a bag of chemicals? Is the love you feel chemical pops in your brain only? Does that describe the world in which we are, the essence of what's here? This is why it's so profound. And it's permeating. It's permeating. It, it challenges even how we come into relationship with one another beyond children because what produces children? God created Adam and Eve to come together in relationship, a unique one that would bear other children with his image the way they were. And that is completely shifting and changing. I won't go into all the directions. We've dealt with it. We'll do it again. I know the lightning rods. But let me just deal with this one. Recently, there was a celebrity that came out and said that marriage is an antiquated concept. It's a Eurocentric, antiquated concept that's based in property ownership, and it needs to be rejected. So in other words, when we get married, we're not getting married out of love. We're not getting married because we want to serve one another in love. We're not getting married as a covenant in the eyes of God to produce children who bear his image. All of that is bunk. We need to reject marriage because all it is is one person treating another like property. Do you see how much everything shifts 
when we remove God? In fact, I believe what's happening today, and I've shared this with some through, the, through these, these weeks here, and through these months I've been thinking about this, that when you begin with God, it ultimately leads to a place of accountability. Even with the day when people didn't agree on who God was all the time, they at least knew they were accountable. They were accountable to a higher source and, and a higher power, and therefore they were careful about how they treated another. And of course, that leads to a place of humility and ultimately to community and ultimately to things like love. But when you start with a place of autonomy, that it's me and me alone, and I define what's true, and I define what's right or wrong, then that leads to pride. No accountability but self-validation, and that ultimately leads to power. And that is the ethic, my friends, today. It is power. If you disagree with me, my job is not to consider if what you're saying is right or wrong, whether it lines up with the facts. That's not my lived experience. It's not whether it's right or wrong. My job is to dominate the conversation or dominate until I win. That is what's dominating the world today. And power has consumed our very souls. If we don't restore the pillar that God is the creator of all, that God is the moral authority for all, everything comes crashing down. The third pillar is Scripture. Stuart again said last week that a philosopher named Frederick Nietzsche one time said, there's no truth, only interpretation. Notice that. He wasn't just challenging truth. He was challenging interpretation, that, we, that you and I can interpret something and arrive at the same conclusion so that it's binding to both of us. There's a reason why interpretation ultimately gets challenged. Because Scripture, as it's classically understood, as it defines itself, as we'll see, that it's the Word of God, the Bible, which is complete, it's inspired by God, it's inerrant, it's able to be interpreted sufficiently by all and authoritative on all in regards to faith and practice. That's what it used to mean. But a neo-Orthodox view has changed that in the past few decades and more to accepting a scriptural idea that the Bible is a collection of imperfect stories through which you may find truth for yourself or not. It's yours to choose or not. Take, take your pick. This is not what the Bible says. Second Peter chapter 1, knowing this, first of all, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. It's not just a private understanding. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God spoke to writers. God was the source. It's one consistent source, and therefore he can give us one consistent and sufficient interpretation. Yeah, we may disagree on some details at times. Most of the time that's because of our own fall and sin, not because of his problem. But ultimately we can come to that place of understanding it responsibly and in context and in history and in its meaning so that we can apply it to our lives. And so we can fulfill 2 Timothy. All scripture is God-breathed. Not God-directed, go write a book and maybe it'll come out okay, but God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, not, not, not just teaching, but rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped, not partially equipped, thoroughly equipped for every good word. That's a foundation but it's being eroded. And so now we have situations like I read a few weeks back. An article by a student who has given their life to the study of Scripture and to the ministry of the Word. They are a master's degree in theology and in Bible studies. They get all the answers right on the test. But when they were asked their view on Scripture, this is what this person said. They said the problem is, is the moment two people read a Bible passage, it's subject to their personal interpretation, and so there is no way to guarantee they will arrive at the same place 
regarding what it says and what they should do. Do you see that? Did you see the subtle shift? Scripture can't be understood the same way by all of us anymore. That's what they're saying. This is a student who is studying in a seminary. This is in the church, brothers and sisters. This change of the foundation is even within the church. This is not just us railing at the world. We have to realize the depth and breadth of what's going on here in this shift. And so this is, again, postmodernism in action. And so we've got to do even more than demonstrating that Scripture is the Word of God, calling it the Word of God, showing that it's the Word of God. But we also even need to restore the pillar that Scripture can be interpreted. We need to know how to interpret it. We need to take that serious, seriously and then, and then show how it applies to all of our lives. If we don't do this, if we don't demonstrate this, that it can be done. I do find it interesting that student, again, I don't mean to be snarky, but I would have loved to look at them and said, the statement that you just made, that nobody can understand it the same way, do you feel I can interpret your statement and come to the same conclusion that you can? Think about it. You know, but I, I wouldn't do it, okay? I mean, I wasn't there. But that's, that's the issue. That it ultimately falls as an argument, it falls down on its face, but we can't see it anymore. And this is the charge of the church. And the pillars erode further to one more thing, and that's lordship. Jesus is the Lord of all, to whom I entrust my decisions, my feelings, and my life as his to shape. That is how we are supposed to understand it. But that has changed. And the Jesus of rediscovery over the last 20 years has become that Jesus is either a mythical figure, somebody who didn't even exist, or just simply one more teacher to ignore or to reject if you wish. And there's no good reason to believe he's Lord of all. Did you know I just read something recently that a, a study was done and more than 60% of born-again Christians in America, those who claim to be born-again followers of Jesus Christ, led by the Spirit, between the ages of 18 and 39, believe that Buddha, Muhammad, and Jesus are all valid paths to salvation. 60%. And 30% of those said that either he sinned or they're not sure. Maybe he did sin. If he sinned, how can he be Lord? How can he be Savior? What happens to the whole gospel if we weren't created in the first place? If God isn't there? If we didn't fall? Do you see what's happened as the pillars are eroded? The culture doesn't want to talk about Jesus as something significant. Like Stuart said, you can talk about God generally, but the moment you start talking about Jesus seriously, all the questions start. Chesterton said it this way, you may talk of God as a metaphor or a mystification, you can water him down with gallons of long words, and people don't punish, they don't even protest. But if you speak of God as a fact, as a thing like a tiger, as a reason for changing one's conduct, then the modern world will stop you somehow if it can. And he went on to say, we're long past talking about whether an unbeliever should be punished for being irreverent. It's now thought irreverent to be a believer. And I would add, and now believers find it irreverent to be a believer. Where we're at a point now where it is commonplace to see someone say, I am a Christian, I follow Jesus, I go to church, and yet Jesus would have this to say. Luke chapter 6, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Our lives are not based on him anymore. It's not based on, our decisions are based on him because the pillars have eroded. And we believe truly that he has nothing to offer 
Matthew 7, therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man. It is time to restore the lordship of Christ. And that begins with the church, not with the world. It's so easy for us to push it off as somebody else's problem. This is our issue. This is the church's challenge today. Yes, a time has come when we don't want to put up with sound doctrine. But whose is that to address? Truth. God. Scripture. Lordship. We have to hold and reestablish these pillars because they are the endpoints of the cross. And it's the cross that communicates not just facts and arguments, but it's answers and it's the deepest understanding. You want to talk intersectionality? This is where we find the intersectionality of the deepest issues of life. And it's presented by God out of a heart of love. That is what God wants us to share to the world. When we look at the cross and we see him on the cross and how he connects us to God and us to each other, that's what the cross represents. His head to connect to the Father above. His heart to connect to the ones he loved. His feet to connect to the earth where we live. His hands outstretched to gather us in. He pours out joy through tears that mourn. Unites his kin with a crown of thorns. He binds up wounds with nail-pierced hands. Unbinds the souls in captive lands. The cross connects him to our sin. The cross connects us all to him. The cross draws us to the soul-drawn lover. The cross calls us to love one another. The cross brings home the sons to the Father. The cross held the Son as the way for his brothers. The cross completes us up and down and all sides. The cross is him and us and our life. The cross is our message. But it's built on the rock, and that's Jesus. And the church is called to restore those foundations that the world is seeking to erode. So what will we build on? If you have never placed your faith in Jesus, consider that. Spend time with God today. Think on this. What are you building on? But if you are a follower of Jesus, that question is just as relevant to us. Whom will we build on in our lives and our decisions? Not just our words, but our lives and our decisions. What will we build on? That's where it begins. What will we build on? I know you're going to be hearing a lot more about that around here because we've been talking about biblical worldview and the importance of establishing these things so much and that will be coming more. But don't sit this out. This is the time. We've got Bible studies. We've got DBI classes. There's discussion groups. There's time where you can just spend in Scripture and in prayer but let's prepare ourselves. I believe that this is the time where the church can literally be a city on a hill. It's in times like this when we can be that together. But we got to start building. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are the rock upon which we build. All else is sinking sand. Jesus, establish that deep in our hearts. Help us, God, to seek those things diligently and to offer them to a world so desperate for them even though we don't often realize how desperate we are. God, guide us, we pray. Begin this work in us again, in Jesus' name, amen.